I'm going to get us right into God's Word this morning. Um, so, if you could open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, we're going to be reading there verses 19 through 31. If you need a Bible, please raise a hand, we'll get one to you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can keep it. If you know someone you want to give it to, take it home and give it to them. Um, we're a church where our, we feel like our main focus and calling from God is to, to spread abroad the, uh, the Word of God. So, um, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. We'll read it, pray, and then we will uh, get moving here. There was a rich man, and I should say, Jesus is telling this parable to these Pharisees uh, who were kind of arguing back and forth with him in context, and he, he goes on to share this parable here. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. God, we come as always, situate ourselves under your word, we want to build our lives upon it. You have the authority to speak. We are desperately longing to hear. And God, I know that shot through this parable is the revelation of something quite horrible, a reality we know as hell. And Lord, as we press into some of that this morning and consider it together, uh, my prayer is that the revelation of your justice, the revelation of your wrath, the revelation of your holiness, the revelation of our own sinfulness, as we catch a, a, a deeper glimpse into those things, as uncomfortable as it may be, I, I pray that it would in the end, by the time we're done, serve to increase or give us a greater revelation, a greater appreciation for the gospel. And just what it is that Jesus did on the cross some 2,000 years ago for sinners like me. So thank you, thank you, Lord, 
for drinking the cup of wrath that was reserved for me. For taking hell in our place. God, I pray this morning that you would open eyes, you would open ears, you would let our hearts be attuned to your word. We'd meet with you. Be transformed by grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, okay, so this is now our second week in this text. Some of you guys obviously weren't here last week, but this is now our second week in this text. And last week I brought out a few observations, kind of here or there, uh, drawing from the text and reflecting on things with you. I told you, and I know you guys were eagerly anticipating this, uh, I told you last week that what we were going to do today is actually just simply focus in on this subject of hell. It's the subject that you see uh, kind of running through this entire parable. I recognize it is not very popular. It's not very heartwarming. Uh, it's not something that we like always to consider, and yet here it is. Uh, in fact, I recognize that the doctrine of hell is probably the least palatable uh, of all Christian doctrines. It's the one that we kind of want to wiggle out of. It's the one that even believers are kind of ashamed about, a little embarrassed to tell others about, a little, little worried to talk to other people about. Kind of want to skirt around it rather than uh, look uh, deeply at it or address it. And I'm your pastor. I love you. Therefore, uh, I hope like a good physician who's not going to just kind of skirt around the big blob and the x-ray or whatever and the cat scan. Oh, I think you have a tumor. I, I want to actually talk about this stuff, the problem and, and what it deserves and the reality of God's judgment and wrath uh, because of our sin. Uh, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who once said, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom, and it has the support of reason. He's saying, listen, I don't like hell all that much. It's not that fun, but here it is. And at the end of the day, it actually not only uh, makes sense biblically, it makes sense to us rationally. And I hope that we will start to see that even as we go along. But uh, I wonder if you realize Jesus, who we understand to be kind of uh, the preeminent servant of grace, right? I mean, he's the one who took judgment in our place on the cross. Jesus, the preeminent servant of grace, is actually the one who in the, the scriptures talks about hell and wrath the most. And in our text, he's at it once more. And again, I think he's doing it because he's a good physician, because he loves us. And you might not get this sort of thing from TV that's going to tell you you're awesome and everyone else just needs to get on board and realize how great you are. You say, listen, there's a big problem hanging over the universe because of the stuff that's lodged inside the human heart. It's called the wrath of God. So three things uh, with regard to this idea of hell that we're going to look at this morning. First, the reality of it. Second, the understanding of it. And then third, uh, perhaps uh, con uh, contrary to expectation, the good news of it. 
So first, the reality of it. I'm just going to fly through this. I'm going to spend most of my time in part two and we'll make our way to three. But what I want to do here in the beginning is just make sure that we even see uh, the reality of hell, that we understand from uh, this parable what Jesus has to say in particular here, what hell is even like, what what it's all about. And I want to bring out um, just three observations for us so we can kind of see it, consider it together. Observation number one, I think it's clear on the surface of our text that hell is dreadfully painful. Now you start to get into why this isn't so popular to talk about. Uh, we are forced to see this straight away there in verse 23. Uh, but if we pick it up, latter part of verse 22, we read this. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment. It goes on. And down near the end when he's... Uh, pleading with Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his brothers. He said, Man, I don't want my brothers to come to this place of torment. So there's something torturous about hell. There is uh, something uh, dreadfully painful about it. And we see that elaborated upon even further in verse 24. When he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that poor man who was at his gate, to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. There's the idea again of, of pain and anguish. And we also get this, this image of fire now. I mean, we're about to enter into uh, California wildfire season, right? I think I saw there's evacuations down south already. We understand, to some degree, the metaphor of fire and the terror of it and, and, and then the, the dreadful nature of it. So this image is not comfortable. Now, this is not your little campfire that you roasted s'mores on, right? This is God's fury, God's anger at the sinfulness of man. But I get ahead of myself. Observation number two. We see that it is also, hell is, eternally fixed. This is what comes out in verse 26 in response to the rich man's plea uh, for Lazarus to be sent over to him with water. Abraham responds, listen, it can't happen. Why? For between us and you, he says, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So the idea here is there's, there's this sort of inescapable finality to hell, to this, these eternal realities. So it's as the author of Hebrews would say, it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. And after that, there's no transference, there's no do-overs, there's no kind of, hey, uh, can I kind of get a mulligan and come back and go, go give it another go? It's... Eternally fixed. It's over. There's no passing in between. I mean, what you do with Jesus here and now, what you make of him here and now, determines your there and then forever. Because, as we'll see, of sin and, and the great reality of God's holiness and wrath. Observation number three. Uh, so first we saw it's dreadfully painful, it's eternally fixed. Now we get to kind of the, probably the hardest part of all, and that's that it's divinely superintended. I've been alluding to this all along, but what I mean here is that there is someone over this reality in hell. Uh, this man is being tormented because there is a tormentor, right? Or this chasm is there uh, because it was fixed there. It was put there, if you notice, with a purpose. There's a purpose clause in order that. So this didn't just happen to be there. It was 
put there in between the two realities of heaven and hell. By someone. And the question is who? Now you and I would probably like to think, well maybe it's just Satan, man. That, that rebel, that rebel Satan's always doing these horrible things that none of us want to consider. It's horrible. One day God's going to do away with it. No, I'm sorry. When we take into consideration the, 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 the full breadth of Scripture's teaching on the subject, the clear, the clear implication and conclusion to draw is that God superintends over hell. This is God's doing. Now, at once, right, especially in our, our day and age, modern man hears that God is over or such a reality as hell and objects. Perhaps you have, I mean, I have, I mean, this sermon... Half of the reason why I'm spending time here is because I struggle. What is that? But you can hear the objections, right? Perhaps they're even rising up in your own heart right now. How could a loving God, I mean, how could the God uh, of grace be superintending, be, be, be overseeing hell and administering this sort of pain to people? I mean, I can't believe in a kind of God like that. That sounds kind of backwoods. That sounds kind of superstitious, medieval. Like those sorts of times, maybe, where they, they, they doctored up this idea of hell so they could scare people into their religion. But you're not going to scare me with that. I'm not going to fall for your little tactics, your little fear tactics. This doesn't sound right to me. Now, I want to move here in light of that objection to the understanding of it, the understanding of it. Um, we get something of the reality of it. We start to feel some of these reactions. I want to know, how do, how do we understand this? How are we supposed to understand this? What are we to make of it? Is the modern man's objection valid here, or is there more to it than that? Um, as I was thinking about these things, uh, the immediate kind of conclusion that, that came to my mind in terms of how do we understand it? Why do we often object to it? I think uh, largely the issue is we have this sort of uh, a severely de- deficient view, both of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So we erupt with some sort of uh, objection because we don't understand, I think, primarily two realities. Namely, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. Now, I was happy to see uh, that um, J.I. Packer, a great uh, renowned theologian, um, in his book, Concise Theology, he agrees with me on this. And he writes this. The revelation of hell in Scripture assumes a depth of insight into divine holiness, there it is, and human sinfulness, there's the second, that most of us do not have. In other words, you are not going to get hell. You're not going to understand what this parable is talking about. You're going to kind of want to pass over it, gloss over it, forget about it, or object to it. Unless you get a clearer understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And when in fact you do, what you start to see is how reasonable, how appropriate, in fact, it is. But again, our understanding of these things, I think, on this side of eternity will be uh, inevitably um, insufficient. 
Nonetheless, I want to try to take those one at a time and help us a little bit here. Now, the first one, the holiness of God, I'm going to fly through real quick. I want to spend more time on that second one, the sinfulness of man. But let's let's look at the holiness of God here for a moment. Uh, the idea that we object to hell because we have no clear understanding of God's holiness. Let me expound on that. I think that we tend to, just by nature, uh, imagine that God is of the, storm, of the same sort of nature as us. He's a being sort of kind of kind of like us. We tend to think that that's how he is. We don't understand what it means for him to be thoroughly set apart, uh, to be pure beyond anything we've ever seen, to be unswervingly righteous, to be inescapably just. We we don't get these sorts of categories. Or like what Habakkuk says, he says his eyes are too pure. He can't even look upon evil with favor. You and I look upon evil with favor all the time. And we kind of think, God, man, surely you could bend the rules and kind of get all these people in and out of that dreadful place. Just kind of dust some of that stuff under the rug. Like, you're in charge, right? You made the rules. Bend them a bit. I would if it were me. I don't want all that pain and horrible stuff going on. And we kind of imagine that people end up in hell not so much because of God's holiness, and his unswerving commitment to what is right and good, but instead because he's kind of cranky and a little crabby and cantankerous and like a parent who um, uh, perhaps should and, uh, take his child out from time out, decides to just kind of let him sit in there because they want to enjoy their glass of wine in peace. Right? Like he could, but he doesn't. That's kind of how we think of God, and it does not do justice in the least to his holiness. Perhaps one of the best ways to come at the idea of the holiness of God is to watch how men respond when they really come to face him. Now, all throughout the Bible, people come to kind of encounter even just a little bit of God, and every time, even the best of men are reduced to rags on the ground. That's just what it means to come into the presence of God. It's nothing he can shield us from. Just who he is. Let me show you this. Uh, a couple of examples. We might think of the prophet Isaiah. Okay. This is a guy who prided himself on, it would seem, on, on being um, God's instrument of rebuke there in Judah. As they were kind of falling into sin, the prophet Isaiah, a lot of the opening, uh, opening chapters of his book begin with things like this. Like, woe to you for, and woe to you for this, and woe to you for that, and woe to you. And you got to think, inside he's kind of going, man, and how awesome am I? But then all of a sudden, chapter 6, Isaiah is given this vision of God, the holiness of God, the splendor of God. And he hears the angels calling to one another. Chapter 6, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah turns and declares at once, Woe is me, for I am ruined. No more woe to you. Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You catch that? He thought he was awesome until he saw what awesome really was. And then all of a sudden, woe is me. I am unclean. And he's on the ground. He sees it. Oh, I don't belong here. What in the world? 
am I doing? The Apostle Paul, it was the same sort of thing for him. You remember when he's thinking he's a servant of God's justice as he's coming after the followers of the way, the Christians, the the aberration of the Jewish people who are going after this dead uh, Messiah, you know, and, and making up all of these things. He thinks he's defending God. And he, he would say, man, he, he's priding himself in his righteousness. He has ev- all the pedigree that you would want. And then all of a sudden, as he's pursuing these men to, to persecute and kill, Jesus shows up to him in glory, brighter than the noonday sun, and he's just knocked on his face, and we're told that he just goes blind immediately, but in his blindness, he actually ironically starts to see, I am blind. I am a sinner. My righteousness is shot through with a mess of of, of motivations that are not pure. Pride and just yuck. I didn't catch it until the holiness of God came upon me, until the glory of God shone upon me. Now, I think we get this in many ways. I have to forgive me, I got this headache going. Um, I, I think we get this in many ways, just even in how we approach uh, things in the physical realm. So think about this. If you're going on a date, right, uh, with someone, are, am I the only one who's kind of like, hey, I, I want to go somewhere where the lights are dim? Okay, so we, I used to serve at a restaurant. We would purposefully dim the lights, right? You could hardly see anything. But everybody looks good in dim light, right? I look like a million bucks when I say, hey, how are you, honey? Yeah, what's up? You know, she's looking good. But then all of a sudden, you turn up the wattage. All of a sudden, you, you turn up the lights. And man, I didn't see that pimple right there on your forehead. What, what is that stain on your shirt? Man, I can tell your hair's been thinning. You're getting old there, man. You start, you start to see the mess. You start to see the junk. And we like to hide in the dark and kind of keep ourselves from the light. And we feel good. We feel good when we're here. We feel awesome when we're here. And then all of a sudden, the light of God comes upon us. And you go, no way. I'm a man in desperate need of grace. Now, all of this is going to lead then to the second Um, thing that we need to look at, and that is the sinfulness of man. So in the first case, the holiness of God, it's not that he's mean or that he's crabby or trying to expose or hurt. It's that he simply is holy, pure, bright, and like the author of Hebrews would say, a consuming fire. That's who he is. And he's not, he can't change. He wouldn't be God if he changed that. Secondly, though, and related, obviously, is this idea of the sinfulness of man. I think there are two things that we don't yet see rightly concerning the sinfulness of natural man. We don't see, first, the depth of it, and we don't see the trajectory of it. And so because of this, because of these kind of uh, 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 misconceptions... Uh, we will forever kind of feel like uh, the judgment of God on sinners in hell is, is, a, is a gross overreaction. So I want to take some time. And you're welcome. I know this is so encouraging. But I, I want to tell you what maybe no one else will tell you. Because it's all over the Bible. God wants you to know. And that is that this, this sinful nature in us goes deeper than we even realize. And it's headed towards something that if we were to see it, I mean, we would run away in terror. We would flee. Let me show you first the depth of it. Um, 
So the first issue, I think, when it comes to our understanding of sin is we don't have any idea how deep it goes. I'm going to paint a pretty bleak portrait for you of human nature as it is after the fall. Um, These are the sorts of dark and bat-infested caverns, you could say, that most of us don't want to go into. But if we're to appreciate the gospel, if we're to appreciate the work of Christ on the cross, we're going to go here. I want to go here. Um, So I'd like to propose uh, the heartwarming notion that at the core of fallen man is something altogether monstrous. Um, This is essentially what the scriptures are everywhere pointing us towards. Let me just show you a few. Uh, These are just the ones that are easiest to hang our hats on. All the narratives are depicting this as well. Ephesians 2 says that all men are by nature children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath and following the prince of the power of the air. It's a reference to Satan. Children of wrath following the devil. Verses 2 and 3 of Ephesians 2. Later in Ephesians 4.18, we read that we're darkened in our understanding. Alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. It's not just ignorance like, well, if I knew I really would come. It's ignorance due to the fact that we don't want to know. More on that a little bit later in the parable. We're alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1.21. Or later in Colossians 2.13, we are dead in our trespasses. What Jesus says to some there in Israel could truly be said to all men as they stand by nature. This is John 8.44. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. This is why John would later say in his first letter, 1 John 3.10, that any who have not been born from above are children of the devil. But there is this fundamental, you know what an antithesis is? It's the opposite of something. Here's the thesis, this is the antithesis. There's a fundamental antithesis in the heart of men, by nature now after the fall. That, that stands in opposition, that stands in rejection to God. I will not bend the knee. I will not follow. It's in the, I am on the devil's team. I will follow him. He will be my daddy. That's what's lodged in the heart of humanity. According to Scripture, There's a deep-seated resentment of and rebellion against God and an unrelenting devotion to self. Now, secondly, and here's where I want to spend a little bit more time, we don't see the trajectory of it. We don't see the depth of it and this fundamental antithesis that's lodged in the heart of of human beings standing against God. We don't see the depth of it and we also don't see the trajectory of it. We don't get where this thing is going. We don't get the track that we are on as sinners standing in opposition to God. We don't get how bad we will really become. We don't get where this is headed. Human beings are not static. And they certainly aren't by nature just going to be getting better like evolution or whatever might have you believe. You're getting worse. It will happen. And you watch it. Now, let me show you... uh, To help make sense of this, 
Um, I want to come at it from the perspective of what uh, theologians have often termed uh, common grace. Okay, and I recognize that may be an unfamiliar term to you. Common grace is, it's pretty simple, it's the grace that's common to all. It's the grace God shows to everyone. Now, the distinction in theology is made between saving grace, which forgives a person from their sin in Jesus Christ, and common grace, which is God just showering grace on all people through all different means that really at the end of the day ends up mainly restraining sin. It's not going to save, but it is going to restrain and hopefully lead you to saving grace. Now, I recognize I'm probably losing you still, and so I feel like the best way for me to help you see this is to start to um, illustrate it for you. But to give you just an image, even as we start, I would say common grace in many ways, at least from the angle I'm coming at it, is that grace that keeps the monster on its chain, so to speak. The monster in human nature is what keeps it on its chain. And in the end, as we'll see, it's going to be removed. Now, common grace restraint. Let me, let me show you four different uh, ways that common grace kind of restrains. I'll call them uh, common grace restraints. I'll give you four of them. Common grace restraint number one, I'd call the conscience. The conscience. You've probably heard people talk about this. The Bible actually talks about this. But the idea is that human beings have been created initially there in Genesis 1 and 2, created uh, good in the image of God. Uh, the, the law of God written on their hearts and, and, and they, they know right from wrong and, and, and there's something good about that. But then in the fall, that's been marred. And yet what we realize is that like Romans 2 and other places says that the law of God still remains in some way on the human, on the human heart. In other words, that we have a conscience in particular, if you're interested in the references, is Romans 2, 14 and 15. Um, even popular secular culture talks about these ideas. We were watching a show that's by no means uh, Christian, and uh, my wife and I, and the, the girl in the show was talking about this little voice in her head. That's the idea I'm talking about. The little voice in your head that kind of says, hey, uh, I want to do this, but I know I probably shouldn't. I know that probably wouldn't be right. I know this might actually be the better way. That's what we talk about when we think of conscience. And, and, and what I mean to say here is there's something of the goodness of God still stamped upon the souls of men. And one of the ways that affects or influences us is it restrains, it restrains humanity from, from kind of the full expression of their sinful nature. There's something that holds it in check. Huh? Maybe I don't want to just smack that person right now, even though I really do. Common grace restraint number two, the Holy Spirit. Uh, here I'm thinking of the fact that Jesus says uh, the Holy Spirit has currently been dispatched by him and the Father, this is John 16, 8, to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So this restraint is related to the first. The Holy Spirit is in the world now to kind of touch the law that still remains on human beings' hearts and say, no. Conviction, that wouldn't be good to convict us of things like righteousness and sin and judgment. And I get that that's not right. This is why, I mean, you know evil when it's done to you, right? You know this. That's wrong. It's still there. There's a sense of it. You don't just take my stuff. You don't just lie to me uh, or, or, or speak bad about me behind my back. You don't lie to me to my face, right? These are 
sorts of things that we get. The Holy Spirit is actually sent out into the world to convict, to raise awareness in human beings of the stuff that's going wrong in them, to bring our attention to it, to persuade us of its validity, and again, hopefully to lead us to the remedy in Jesus Christ. But certainly we could say that one effect of the Holy Spirit's ministry is it restrains the full expression of the sinful nature of humanity. It restrains it. Keeps it a little bit in check. Common grace restraint number three, the civil authority. This is what Paul is talking about. Now, just to recap here, we've seen uh, conscience, Holy Spirit, now civil authority or the government. Uh, This is what Paul is talking about in Romans 13 when he says, governing authorities have been appointed by God. And he goes on, and rulers, this is now verses 3 and 4, rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I know there are bad governments, right? There are wicked governments who use their power for evil. But what Paul is saying here is that when government is functioning properly, it actually serves to restrain the full expression of human sinfulness. It punishes those who are given over to evil and keeps that evil in check on this side of heaven and hell. So that it doesn't just break out into full fire. It's kept in ember form. Let's throw them into prison. Let the fire burn there. Right? And people that know that the government is going to be on them suddenly find themselves wanting to be a by, you know, a law abiding citizens. Give you an example of how this works, and I'm sure, I hope I'm not alone. You know, I may be the only heathen in this room. But, I mean, have you ever been driving down the freeway, maybe going 10, maybe going 15, maybe going 20 miles over the speed limit, right? Because you're late and you got somewhere to be and you're important. And all of a sudden, you look in your rearview mirror and what do you see? A cop coming up behind you. Your heart skips a beat. You're going, oh no, oh no. You kind of, you're looking at your speedometer. You're trying to figure out how fast you were going. You kind of tap the brake, but not too much. So it doesn't seem obvious that you're suddenly jerking to a stop. Rather, let's just slow this down. You, maybe you're on your cell phone. You kind of let that slide down your right side into the seat next to you. And then as he kind of comes along, you kind of pull over to the right. You're just suddenly this law abiding, you know, citizen. Maybe even give him one of those little hearts that people are doing these days, right? Love you. Thank you for your service. Thank you, officer, right? And then all of a sudden you see him. He's on call. He gets off, exits somewhere up there. And then what are you doing? That lead foot comes back a little bit, doesn't it? Just... That's what I'm talking about. I mean, in one sense, it's funny. In another sense, it's not. In another sense, this is exactly what I'm talking about. The government is here to restrain the evil impulse in us that says, it's me and no one else. It's my highway. It's my... This is my world. You all better get out of my way. That's the sort of thing that's kept in check. That when left to run rampant, watch out. Right? Common grace, restraint number four and final here. Um, God's good gifts. God's good Gifts. Here I'm thinking in particular of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that God makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. 
Matthew 5.45, that he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you catch it? There's no discrimination. This is the idea of common grace. He doesn't say, hey, I love my people over here. They're following me. They get sunshine and rain. You guys get, get hailstorms and, and wrath. No, it's in this, in this mixed age where there are children of the devil living alongside children of God. God is pouring out his grace on all. Sun and rain, good gifts. We're not the only ones who can enjoy a, a good steak, right? Unbelievers can enjoy it just the same. We're not the only ones who enjoy family and, 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 and dancing and all these other common grace things. He lets everyone enjoy this. These good gifts that he gives to humanity. One of the... One of the um, things that this common grace, these good gifts, uh, um, accomplish is it restrains, helps to restrain evil. I mean, all you need to do is come at this from the other side. What comes out of your heart when some of those common grace, good gifts aren't there? What happens when, man, your pantry's empty? What happens when the money in the bank is drained out? I had to apologize to, to Ian. I've done it twice now because, because I get stressed on certain things going on in the church and I take it out on him sometimes, right? And I, I'm sorry. Whoa, when, when some of those good gifts and things aren't there, what comes out of my heart is just nasty. You might think of the, what in common vernacular now we talk about the, the idea of being hangry. You know, you've heard of this idea? It's when I'm so hungry that I'm angry, right? That's the concept. The idea is my belly is empty. I don't have the food that I want. And therefore, you better stay out of my way. I get somewhat beastly when I don't have food, when I don't get the sleep I need, when I don't have the common grace, good gifts. Out of me comes something perhaps a bit monstrous. And we're so ready to blame it on those things. That well, that's why. But I'm telling you, the common grace, good gifts are helping restrain now that from fully coming out. The stuff that's in us, that in the end is going to come out in full, full expression. Now, Another illustration that I think really gets at this point well um, comes from a, a book that I've heard many reference over the years entitled uh, Shantung Compound. Compound. It's by a guy by the name of Langdon Gilkey. Um, Tim Keller, uh, a pastor that I really appreciate, referenced it in a talk that he actually gave at Google, uh, I think back in 2016. And I just simply wanted to read what he has to say here um, about this guy's story, because it's profound. And you will see what I'm talking about. Here's uh, Keller talking about this book. Langdon Gilkey was a young man who graduated from Harvard with a philosophy degree with honors in the 1930s and went to China to teach at a university there. And during World War II, when the Japanese overran that part of China, he was put into a detention camp. It was a really difficult place. 2,000 people in less than a city block. There were something like 20 toilets for all of them. It was a very, very difficult situation. Now, growing up, 
Gilkey had lost his church faith. He had actually believed in the goodness of human beings, the inherent goodness of human beings. And he believed that rationality is the way to overcome our problems and that religion actually wouldn't help much. When he was there in that camp, he came to see that there is absolutely no way that is true. Human beings, he concluded, are basically selfish. He actually says at one point that he came to believe what the Bible said about sin. He said self-interest seemed almost omnipotent in that place, next to the weak claims of logic and fair play. As the months went by, he constantly faced intractable self-centeredness. He tried to get them. He, he had hope for humanity, and he tried to get them in dire straits to serve one another and think about the, the others other than themselves in this place so they could kind of come together, and they wouldn't do it. Everyone was twisting everything to get what they need, because it's me. Common grace, good gifts are gone. Restraining stuff from the government, whatever, Gone. I mean, it's about me now. It's about survival. Get out of my way. That's what he started to see. He actually said, Tim Keller says here, the fundamental bent of the whole human self in all of us is inward toward our own welfare, and we're so immersed in it that we hardly are ever able to see it in ourselves, much less extricate ourselves from our dilemma. So this guy comes into the internment camp believing in the inherent goodness of man. No, 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 no. We're we're climbing. We're going to get better. Not just intellectually, but morally. And then he sees in here, oh my goodness, when all these things are taken away and we're just kind of exposed for what we really are, well, out comes the monster. Out comes the the sovereignty of self. And he says, man, what the Bible has said about sin has been right all along. It's in there. It's just been restrained. It's just been kind of covered by grace, but it is going to come out. Now, the upshot in all of this is that in the end, on the last day, all of these common grace restraints are going to be removed and fallen human nature will be shown to be the monstrosity that it is. That's where I'm driving with all of this. Did, Did you hear that? So I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine the day when all that has laid kind of somewhat dormant in us in seed form will come into full flower. The day when that antithesis is allowed to emerge fully, when the opposition is allowed to really come out, when common grace restraints have all been removed, when the conscience is no longer the, the little voice of the conscience, there's nothing telling you it's wrong or right anymore. It's just, I want it, I get it. Period. I want you to think about that. That's, that's what happens when these restraints are removed. When the Holy Spirit is just, it just packs up shop and, and leaves man to himself. What's going to come out? It's not going to go well. It's not going to be pretty. When the civil authority is no longer bearing the sword for God anymore. And keeping us in check on the freeways and in the grocery store. What's going to keep you just filling your pocket with whatever you want? Because it's you. It's about you. And what will come of man when all of God's common grace, good gifts that we just take for granted as our due, 
are removed and there's no more sunshine there's no more rain there's no more full belly there's no more grace common grace just gone well I'll tell you sort of the sort of things that will come out of man's heart at that point I mean, what is now on this side of, 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 of eternity of the judgment day and all this what is now uh, kept in check and looks like a little bit of lust here Ooh, I know I probably shouldn't act on that because what will people at church think or what will my friends think or uh, that would cause some problem. What's now lust? Let me tell you something. When all restraints have been removed, it will just become full on rape. There will be nothing to hold it back. You get that. It's not, I want it, but I probably shouldn't. All those restraints are gone. It will just be, I want it, I take it. The same thing with the idea of the, the little flashes of covetousness that we have now. Oh, I really want what they have. I wish I could get that car. I wish I could get that life, whatever it is. And now we kind of go, oh, that wouldn't look good. I don't want to look desperate and I don't want to look mean. I'll, kind of, I'll, get, I'll go about it another way. But there, just listen. There's no checks. There's no restraints. You want it, you take it. I deserve that, not you. The same thing with the grumbling now or the bitterness that we nurse against people that hurt us. Right now, it's kept in check because, goodness gracious, we don't want to go to jail for murdering somebody. But I am telling you, that will swiftly become, with all common grace restraints removed, murder. (laughs) I don't like you. I want you out of my life. That's that's what's going to happen. And what we come to realize then is that in one sense, you'd barely even have to have God inflicting punishment on people in hell. Because they will devour one another. You catching that? Well, how much time do I got to get to some good news? Oh, goodness, I got a little bit more here and then we'll get there. But I am telling you, we got we we to push against the culture's understanding. That, oh, we're inherently good. There's the little God in us and we're going to come out and it's going to be great. I'm telling you, according to the Bible... There is a monster in us. And unless that monster is crucified, nailed to the cross with Christ, put to death with him, and we can be raised to new life in him by his spirit with a new principle put in our hearts of love for him and love for others that starts to make its way out onto glory. Listen, unless that happens, it's not going to go well. What is restraining evil in you now is not your inherent goodness, but his common grace. And on the last day, that common grace will be removed. And I suppose then what you would see is, in light of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of man, his judgment is just and good. But now let me show you a little bit of how this plays out in our text with the rich man, Lazarus. Okay, He is there, and I wonder if you notice this, uh, he is on a trajectory himself, this rich man. He is on a trajectory, and it's not pretty. Many scholars have pointed out he's actually getting worse What we see is this sort of digression, this devolution in this man, that sin is having its full effect. One of the ways we see that he's getting worse is is that he actually, if you notice in verse 24, even in hell is still beckoning this poor man Lazarus to serve him. I mean, that's what you read there when he says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. I want you to catch it. He is saying, listen, that guy's still a servant, right? That guy's still less than me, right? Send him here to bring me some water. 
There's something still lodged in his heart. And I'm saying that's worse because this brother is in hell and he still thinks he can boss others around. There's no repentance. There's no softening. There's just sort of a a concretizing of where he was headed, which is it's me all about me. And we continue to see that play out in perhaps an even worse way in what goes on. We see he's not only beckoning Lazarus to serve him. He's blaming God for his fate. That's what comes out in verses 27 through 31. Look at that again with me. I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house. He's still trying to get Lazarus to serve him, by the way. Send him to my father's house if he can't come here. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no. He objects. Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, at first, his pleas here seem like, oh, maybe he's starting to get it. Concern for others. He's thinking about his brothers. He's starting. There's someone else out there. In one sense, we go, yes, okay, maybe. I hope. But when you look under the hood, you see something even more sinister going on. What he's really doing is blaming God for the fate that he's in. He says, you didn't give me enough information. I'm here because there wasn't enough in in Moses and the prophets in, in the Old Testament. There wasn't enough in the Bible to prepare me for this, to get me out of this, to lead me to repentance. You failed me and I don't want you. I'm giving you a chance to make it up and not fail them. That's the sort of thing that's coming out of his heart. Now, with the last line from Abraham there, Jesus is signaling to what I've been saying all along about the depths of man's sinfulness. He's saying, listen, if Moses and the prophets weren't enough, even a great miracle like someone rising from the dead won't be enough. What he's pointing to is the depths of this rebellion, the depths of this antithesis. It's not as if you are objective like you think you are. And if shown enough evidence, you will just bow your knee and trust Jesus. No. When shown the evidence, you will twist it to serve what your hard heart desires. And that's exactly what we see. We know Jesus is kind of signaling us towards, he's going to be the one to rise from the dead, right? He's going to be the one that rises up from the dead as this miraculous sign. And let me ask you something. Do these men turn? Do the Pharisees and these these Jewish people in their hard hearts, do they suddenly go, wow, we were wrong, you were right, we will follow. You read the book of Acts and you see the exact opposite. They just doubled down on their rebellion and they said, let's kill everyone who saw him rise and everyone who claims to believe in it, let's put an end to it. You see, it was never about objective truth. It was never about oh God, you know, and what he would show us. It was about the sovereignty of self. So when Jesus threatened that, kill him. When he rises from the dead, kill his followers. That's what's in man. That's why hell, judgment, wrath is appropriate. I don't know what else to say. What do you do with people like that? What do you do with people like us? With that sort of stuff in our heart, you've got to get rid of them. Do you not? I mean, here's the bottom line. Heaven would not be heaven if these guys, me, in that state, were allowed to be there. 
I just told you part of what made what makes hell hell is because we're there in the full expression of all that we are devouring each other. That is why the scriptures call it like the place where the worm never dies. You're never satisfied, always eating. Right? So you let the rich man just kind of march up into paradise with Lazarus and let him ball and chain and enslave him. It's no longer paradise. Evil has to be done away with. We have to see it for what it is. And then when we see it for what it is, we see God for who he is, glorious and good, holy and right. Worthy of praise. His judgments are true. And they will stand. No tongue will object. And we're starting to make our way to the good news of it. But of course, there's another element in all of this, isn't there? And this is where I want to leave us. Because the amazing thing, I mean, all I've done to this point, I took a long time to get here, is say, we are really, really bad. And we are headed towards a place that is really, really bad. Rightfully so. But all of a sudden, and what we come to realize, what we watch as we kind of follow Jesus, we recognize that God, in mercy, though he should rightly put us in that place of torment, though he should rightly stomp out just the, the, the nastiness that is in us and get us away from everything that is good and pure and right, instead he sends his son into the fire. And said, he comes into the place of torment in our place. That's what is happening on the cross. All that we watch the rich man dealing with there in hell is essentially what we see Jesus dealing with at Calvary on behalf of sinners like us, for us. Not because he deserved it, not because there's some sort of a monster in him. He was perfect and pure and holy, and yet he jumps into the fire in our stead. So the torment, the anguish, you see it, do you not? Or even as we read of the rich man, you know, get me water, I'm in anguish in the flame. What does Jesus cry out on the cross? I thirst. The fire is engulfing me. And we saw this idea of a chasm in between the place of God and where this rich man was. What is that chasm there on the cross? But what Jesus is talking about when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm here. You're way over there. All goodness, all grace, all up, removed from me and just wrath. The full fury that sinners like you and I deserve poured out upon him. He is drinking down the flames of hell in those moments. That's what he is doing. And it is all superintended by God. They have planned it. They have prepared us for it, promised it, prophesied it in Moses and the prophets. They've been moving toward this from day one. God's at work crushing his son for the sake of you and I. So that that monster, we embrace Jesus, that monster in us is put to death in him. And there is something new, a new principle that can be put in the hearts of man by his spirit. 
when He raises from the dead, He pours out His Spirit. What He is saying there is, listen, there are new beginnings. You are born again from above. And now, yes, are you still a sinner and the external stuff is gross sometimes? Absolutely. But inside, instead of antithesis trending towards monstrosity, now there is this sort of uh, reconciliation with God, love for Him that is trending towards glory. And on that day, it will become clear, children of God, children of the devil, white, dark. This is why that story with, about Langdon Gilkey in the internment camp there, it's very interesting. He goes on and he, he, he says, man, I saw all this selfishness, and all this yuck, when common grace sort of restraints were removed. But there was one man. There was one man there who didn't seem sucked into the vortex of self-centered yuck. And he, he pries in to find out why, and he comes to find it's because he has a life-giving relationship with Jesus. And the grace of Christ snaps this. It starts to turn us in the other direction, breaks the sovereignty of self, and puts us in the kingdom of God. And we know, man, he's going to take care of me. He's forgiven me. He sees me for the yuck that I am, forgives me, loves me. This guy was serving. He was able to serve others even in that place. And that's what God wants to do with us. He wants to change us from the inside out, get us tracking towards glory, towards heaven, make us more like our Father. So I'd encourage you guys, I'd invite you, turn and trust Jesus. Stop talking about, hey, we're pretty good, right? Like, no. There's creational goodness that remains, but that will be done away with in the end, and it will be expo- we will be exposed for what we really are. And I'm telling you, we want to cling, flee to Jesus, trust in Him, let Him rearrange the insides and prepare us for paradise. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy. I know, I know we went into the caverns today. And I pray, God, that your people, even though we only in the last moments ascended to Calvary's cross and the climax there, I pray that they see what you have done in so much uh, more technicolor. That you took hell for us. You made a way for, for, for devolving monsters to be made human again. To be made like you and restored in your image. God, we find freedom being able to admit there is, there's depths in us that are no good. But then also knowing that you accept and you are at work in our lives by your grace. That it's not our job to figure it out and to make ourselves better. We can't. We just make ourselves worse when we try. We get proud about it. (laughs) Look down on others who aren't getting there as fast as us. The only thing that could snap that is grace. So would you minister that to your people, I pray right now. In Jesus' name, amen.